The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. November 26, 2023, A Journey to Conquering the Idols of the Heart, Part 3. All right, ladies, welcome back from Thanksgiving. I trust you all had a blessed celebration. It sure sounds like everyone did. Um, and in in terms of preparing, there is so much here. So whatever has sounded good to you, grab resources, whether you listen, whether you read. Um, there's just too much to cover, and it's so good, and it really is a lifelong journey. So. Um, we just can't cover it all in the context of one class, no matter how many weeks we take. So at some point, we have to move on. So we will be um, moving on next week. We'll um, kind of start next week with a little bit of a summary of the final chapter in Brad Bigney's book, which is, let me give you the exact title and not try to do it from memory, because my memory is not what it used to be. Um, it, it is called, What Would an Idol-Free Life Look Like? And then... We will kind of introduce with that, and then we're going to transition to um, talking about contentment and peace and joy for our last two weeks into our Christmas break. We'll have the 17th and the 24th off, so we'll just have two Sunday schools in December, and then we'll pick back up in the the beginning of the year. But I thought coming off of a heavy topic like idolatry, it would be nice to just have some joy as we launch into our, um, our... Christmas break. Um, And I was reminded, too, of a passage that I read week one, but at the very beginning of his book, he kind of bookends it with this joy and delight. He says, when you're craving something other than God, even something good, God takes it very seriously. In that moment, he's coming after you. He's coming after you for his glory and your own good, because life is better for us without idols. Life is better for us when we're delighting in the gospel and loving Christ as our highest treasure. Life for us is better when we're focused on God and free from idols. So I just wanted to read that again because it's such a good quote to think about, you know, there are popular books called Your Best Life Now, but they're not going to give it to you. The Word of God is going to give it to you. Um, And when we're rooting out those idols and getting rid of the those besetting sins that we just let hang around too long, life is better. We're more joyful. There's more delight. And um, even in very difficult times, right, what did Paul say? In all circumstances, he has learned to be content. So it is something to be learned. It's not something that comes naturally because in our natural selves, we are not always joyful and delightful and content, but we can learn it too. So, if you've been brave enough to pray the prayer, we've talked about the last two weeks from Psalm 139, 23, and 24. I'll just recap it. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And that last part is key. Like, he wants to lead us down a better path, a different path. Um, But if you have been brave enough to pray that, you're probably starting to see some things in your life maybe you hadn't seen before. Um, Maybe you're not, but you will. Be patient. Um, There are probably some things that have taken a place in your life they were never meant to have. Um, I remember hearing years ago that there's a a quote-unquote God-sized hole in everyone's heart that only he can fill. And while it's 
a little bit of a trite saying in, in Christian circles, it's not untrue. There is a, a very deep part of our hearts that only Christ can satisfy. And so we need to keep striving after him, striving after that joy and that delight that he brings when we are satisfied in him in whatever circumstances he has um, in our lives. But it's necessary for us to do the work. We have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. He's the one that's going to cause the change to happen, but we have to be willing and do the work along the way. And it is hard work. Um, Identifying the idols in our lives, especially the ones that we've buried and are hidden and we've become comfortable with, it is really hard work rooting them out. Um, And then, not only do we have to find them and identify them, then we have to be doing this ongoing work of repentance. And be on guard, because they can come back. Um, Brad Bigney said he has a, a whole repentance plan written out, and he reads it regularly. So that when those things creep back in, they're not blind spots. They've been identified. They've been rooted out. But when they rear their ugly head again, he goes, oh, wait, I know you. I know who you are. You're not coming back. And he continues to do that work of repentance and leaving it at the foot of the cross. Um, So that phrase, but God, we need to remember that, right? In his grace and in his mercy toward us. We are his own children whom he's adopted. He never leaves us alone to do the necessary work. So praise be to God for that. We should be thankful for that. Um, And as we kind of open today, I want to remind you that twice in the New Testament, it's repeated. 1 Peter 5.5 and James 4.6 both say, quote, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And when we really see the sin that's hidden in our lives, when we really see the idols that are there, it will humble us. And it requires humility to root them out and to come face to face with them and just go before the Lord and confess. Like, I've let this go on too long, but I see it now. And so I'm just going to trust that you are going to help me to do the necessary work to get it out. Paul reminds the Corinthian church of the hard work involved in the Christian life. Um, I'm going to read in 1 Corinthians Uh, I'll start in chapter 9. He says in verse 25, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. So we too are required to exercise self-control. There's a work that's indicated there. Exercise, hard work. Self-control is hard work. And then in verse 27 he goes on to say, But I discipline my body and keep it under control. There's that word again, self-control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So even as we're coming alongside others, we need to continue to do the work of keep examining our own lives. And then he goes on in chapter 10. He reminds the Corinthians of um, the Israelites' very poor choices after they were freed from slavery in Egypt. They're freed with God himself guiding them. Exodus 13:21 says, quote, By day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. They're on this journey, and they're supposed to stay on the journey, and they're supposed to be obedient to his leading, just like we're to be obedient to his leading. And sometimes I think we can say, like, well, gosh, if I had a pillar of cloud to know which of these paths in the fork to take, it would be so clear, it would be so easy. But we have the path laid out. We have a better path. We have the whole 
canon of scripture to show us that path, right? Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and he will guide or direct your path. Keep them straight, depending on the, the translation you're reading. But it all means the same thing. The path is lined out for us by day and by night. We're to keep moving along that path. We don't need the pillar of cloud. We don't need the pillar of fire. Fire. Or we'd have it. If we needed it, we'd have it, right? Because God's given us all things that we need. So they experienced his protection as they traveled. Um, they also experienced his deliverance, not only out of Egypt, but also if you think about that vision that they saw at the Red Sea. Imagine what they saw before they crossed, right? They saw those waters part, and they crossed on dry ground. And then they saw those waters come back in as their enemy pursued them. can't even imagine seeing that. Um, but God gave them everything they needed, both physically and spiritually, yet they chose wrongly time and time again and went down the wrong path. So Paul uses this example of God's people to warn the church against idolatry. In fact, he bookends this with that term. He says, uh, he starts in verse 3. Now these things, and he's referring to those examples I just gave you, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So verse 7 is our first bookend. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, quote, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, end quote. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them, them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. So we see they fall into this temptation, and destruction follows, right? Time and time again, from sexual immorality, which we would probably look at our own lives and say, we don't fall into that trap. But then he gets to nor grumble. <laughs> and I can pretty much guarantee we've all fallen into that trap at one time or another. And then in verse 11, he continues, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And here's the second book in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So we get this warning, don't be idolaters. And at the end, we get this second warning, do not um, do not be taken by it. Flee from idolatry. So that verse 14, 13 there there's four promises. Our unique is not our trial is not unique, right? It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And we know Jesus experienced every temptation that we will experience and he overcame them all. That next promise, God is faithful. And if you doubt that, read the Old Testament again, and then read the New Testament, and then read the Old Testament again, and then think back to your own life. And think back to those most difficult of trials that we came through and probably grew more than any other time in our life because God is faithful. He does bring us through those things, but he is sanctifying us as he does. And that doesn't feel good, but it is necessary for us to be sanctified. 
And then that third promise, um, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will give you what you need. He's not going to give us more than we can handle when we depend on him. Now, if we try and carry it in our own strength, I make no guarantees (laughs) because we need to be dependent on him and his power to get us through those things. And lastly, it says he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the escape isn't we're going to get out of it. The escape is we'll get through it with him right by our side. And so those are promises that we do need to be clinging to. Um, So we have to be active and engaged in the battle to free our own hearts from the idols that are already rooted there. And we have to stay diligent to be on the lookout for new ones that want to move in. Um, Because when we clear out the old, right, something will move in. Something will replace it. Um, And that's where the gospel becomes critical. God saved us not only so that we could spend eternity with him after this life. That's overwhelming to fathom on its own. But he saved us so that we might live that reality today, right? He didn't just save us for eternity. He saved us for today, for the joy that we can have in the life that we're living now. Um, Not just so that we can share the truth with others, although that is part of our responsibility. Um, Go to 2 Peter chapter 1, if you would. Um, Because this is really relevant to our day-to-day. Peter says, His divine power has granted, and pay attention to those verbs, it's past tense, it's already done. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted, again, past tense, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, For this reason, make every effort. There's that hard work again, that necessary hard work. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are to be effective. We are to be fruitful. That means we are to be with people. We're to be with believers coming alongside one another. We're to be with unbelievers sharing the truth with them so that they might also know these truths and be able to live them out. So this is a great encouragement to, again, make every effort. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the plan. How do we get rid of these idols and keep them out? I think I mentioned Thomas Thomas Chalmers, it's hard to say fast, um, who was a preacher in the early 1800s. And he, I believe this was a sermon he originally gave. I don't think it was an article for publication, but I could be wrong. I had trouble finding exactly the source, but I did read that it was a sermon. So we'll go with that. And here's what he said in the introduction to his sermon. And this was based on 1 John 2, 15, which says, Love not the world, 
neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Um, So this is his introduction. He says, there are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world, which we're commanded to do, right? Let's be practical. Let's get rid of the love of the world so that we can focus on the love of the Lord. So here are the two ways. Either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regards from an object that is not worthy of it. So in other words, we show what a poor thing the world is to pour our hearts into so that we would be convinced that's just not worth it, right? So that's one way. Or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection which shall have nothing to succeed it. In other words, to leave the whole, right? We get rid of the old affection, but we leave that empty beaker that has to be filled with something. We don't want to backfill it with another idol. So, he says, but to exchange the old affection for a new one. And this sermon or article is called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And I love that title. Like, if you think about... You know, if you were young and there were troublemakers as classmates, I'm sure none of those were you. You know, to hear that word suspended was bad enough, but to hear the word expelled, they were expelled from the school, and now what do they do, right? So we are to expel these old affections, but replace them with a new affection. We have to give our hearts a new object to cling on to. And so there is so much in this article, I can't go through all of it, but I do want to just give a couple of highlights. So um, we have to think about our particular idol or particular sin that we need to expel. He says it must be by substituting another desire, another object still more alluring. And then he goes on to say, quote, but what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed and one taste may be made to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. Isn't that what we want to do? We want to give it no more power to reign in our affections. So later he gets to it. He says the heart must have something to cling to. And that matches what we're taught, right? We're created worshipers. We're supposed to worship. We just displace God and Jesus Christ as our object of worship, and we backfill it with something else that we we want more, right? And we do. We want those things more, or we wouldn't have let them in in the first place. So on its own, our heart can't cast out the world. He says the heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. So we have to make sure it's the right thing. Right? We can't just backfill it with another idol, another sin, another thing, even if it's a good thing. Even if it's, you know, okay, I'm going to cast out my selfishness and I'm going to focus more on pleasing my husband so that I can have the marriage God wants me to have. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But what have we learned? When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a wicked thing, right? We don't want our desire for a good marriage for a good 
testimony as an employee, no matter who is paying our wages, our desire to be a good and godly parent. We don't want any of those things to replace what ought to be our desire for Christ. So then he brings it into reach and gives us just the encouragement we need to do the work. So let's hear what he says for us to do the work. He says, the same revelation which dictates so mighty an obedience places within our reach as mighty an instrument of obedience. It brings for admittance to the very door of our heart an affection which, once seated upon its throne, will either subordinate every previous inmate or bid it away. So everything in our hearts bows before the throne of Christ. Or we oust it. If we can't subject it to the throne of Christ and the place he should take in our heart, we got to get rid of it. He says, beside the world, it places before the eye of the mind, capital H, him who made the world. And with this peculiarity, which is all its own, that in the gospel do we so behold God as that, as that we may love God. This language is a little difficult because it's 1800, so I hope you guys are tracking. Um, if not, you can literally Google the expulsive power of a new affection and find the PDF in multiple places. Um, it is there in this love of God and there only where God stands revealed as an object of confidence to sinners and where our desire after him is not chilled into apathy by that barrier of human guilt which intercepts every approach that is not made to him through the appointed mediator. So we're not to fall into discouragement. We're not to go down that path of guilt that stops us and keeps us there. We bring it to the cross. I remember years and years ago there was a church in... um, Fairfield that would do this huge production at Easter time and it was really a walk through the Passion Week and so you walked through this whole church through different things where Christ walked and it ends in this huge sanctuary, their sanctuary and at the front of the sanctuary they've put together this cross that's very rough as you could imagine the cross of Christ might be. And at one point through the walk through, there's pieces of paper in your ass to write down a sin that you would like to get rid of, right? A sin that you've identified that you need to cast out. Oh, you can feel like the emotion coming back. Not that we're to be led by our emotions, but it was very emotional because when you get to the sanctuary, you're instructed to take that piece of paper and go to the cross and there are nails and you pick up a hammer. And as you're doing it, there's this audio playing in the background and you're hearing that the nails were driven through his hands and you're hammering a nail into it was overwhelming again not that we're led by our emotions but the thought that this one thing isn't even the only thing Christ died for I'm one person nailing one sin to that cross and how hard it was for me I'm not a carpenter, nor am I good. And I was trying really hard not to smash my thumb. But that would have explained the weeping, perhaps. Um, it was it was something. If you ever have an experience, have the opportunity to do something like that, it was really amazing, um, and just very powerful to think the reality that that sin and all the others put him on that cross. Um, it was quite an experience. 
so, but we're not left there, right? We get up and we walk away with the joy that it is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more, right? As the hymn says, and that was a beautiful thing. So he goes on to say, Chalmers does, it is the bringing in of this better hope whereby we draw nigh unto God and to live without hope is to live without God. And if the heart be without God, then the world will then have all the ascendancy. It is God apprehended by the believer as God in Christ, who alone can dispose it, meaning the world, from this ascendancy. It is when he stands dismantled of the terrors which belong to him as an ascended law giver, and when we are enabled by faith, which is his own gift, to see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ and to hear his beseeching voice as it protests goodwill to men and entreats the return of all who will to a full pardon and a gracious acceptance. It is then that a love paramount to the love of the world and at length expulsive of it first arises in the regenerated bosom. It is when released from the spirit of bondage with which love cannot dwell and when admitted into the number of God's children through the faith that is in Christ Jesus, the spirit of adoption is poured on us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires in the only way in which deliverance is possible. The tyranny of its former desires. And when you finally start seeing these idols, it is a tyranny. There's a chapter in um, Brad Bigney's book, and he goes through these three habits, and I'll talk about those in a minute. But at the end of that chapter, habits to overcome these idols and cast them out, get rid of them and keep them out. Um, He shares a correspondence he had gotten from a woman who went through his series. And, you know, this was a godly wife and mom, a church member, a woman serving in her church, but she had no delight in her children. She was too busy training them. There was no joy in her children. There was only hardship in her marriage because she had expectations he wasn't meeting. And all of these things that she was uncovering and identifying, and she shares at the end this great story where one of the battles she and her husband, two of the battles she and her husband had had out Um, over many, many, many years that she had fought and fought and fought. And he finally came and said, I'm doing this and I'm doing this. And they weren't sinful things. He had just made the decisions. These are the things that I'm going to do. And she said, I don't want you to. And he said, I understand. I'm doing them anyways. And that night as they went to bed, she said she made the choice not to roll over and turn away from him, but to roll over and turn toward him and draw near him and say, I love you. Even though you've done the things I've asked you not to, it doesn't have an effect on my love for you. And I thought, wow, what a beautiful picture of someone who has really figured out there are idols in her heart, but God has overcome them. He has said, this is your beloved, right? How many people have that like over their beds in their bedroom, husband and wife? Yet, when the husband doesn't do what the wife wants him to They go to bed and she turns her back instead of turning toward him and saying, I love you, right? And not letting the sun go down, really not even letting the anger take hold because she had just given it all to the Lord and said, it's okay. 
I don't need to control that. I don't, it's not my place anyways, but she had just given it up and she started delighting in her children as she continued to train them because we're not called to train them or delight in them. We're called to delight in them as we train them, but that's hard. That's really hard to delight in children who are either in your face, stomping their feet, shaking their fist and saying, I'm not doing that. Or the opposite child who goes, sure, mom, no problem, and walks away and doesn't do it because in their heart, they're stomping their foot and shaking their fist and going, I'm not doing that. But that's who we are when we don't do what Christ is calling us to do, when we don't honor our parents, no matter how old we are, when we don't submit one to another, when we don't submit to our husbands, when we don't lead and evangelize and train our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Because if I'm doing it another way, I'm just trying to get what I want. I'm just trying to get obedient children. And that's the wrong reason. I don't really want obedient children. I want children who will submit to Christ when they grow up. That's why I want them to obey, because I want them to see there are many blessings in obedience, right? So sometimes we just, our thinking gets really twisted, and we're the ones that have to fix it and figure it out. So we need to be dead to the the influences of the world, and that's what he says later. He says, we know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God. And no other way by which to keep our hearts in the love of God than building ourselves up on our most holy faith. And that's what Peter was talking about, right? Supplement your faith with virtue. Supplement your virtue. We just need to keep going back to the word, going back to the word, because he's given us everything we need. We just need to go take it and embrace it. All right. So we need to be beyond the reach of anything that would capture our hearts away from Christ. We need to make sure of that. I do want to go back to Jerry Bridges' Respectable Sins for a moment. He has a chapter where he gives some very practical tips to deal with this sin that so easily entangles and keeps hold of our hearts. Um, None of this is new. None of it. You will recognize every single point that he brings out. But I thought it was worth going through it again because, as I've said before, this isn't new, but we need to be applying it. And we need to be applying all of it. And so if you hear one or two aspects that ring like, ooh, I need to start doing that again more regularly, jot it down. Because I'm sure you're doing a number of these. First, he says we must deal with our sin in the context of the gospel. The gospel that has assured our forgiveness in Christ. Remember... When Paul tells us in Romans, there is now no what? Where? In Christ Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So if we are clinging to Christ and clinging to the cross, not only have we been forgiven, but this came out last week. 1 John 1, 9 says, he is faithful when we are repentant, when we confess our sins. He is just and faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness we are clothed with the righteousness of christ and we need to remember that so that we don't fall back into being unforgiving of others or of ourselves 
being unforgiving of ourselves is no less sin than being unforgiving of others, right? We need to accept that and embrace it. Second, he says, quote, we must learn to rely on the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, end quote. That's our power source, right? And we have to cling to the Spirit or we can't do what we're called to do. We just can't. We can't do it on our own, right? Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. When we finally figure out our own spiritual weakness, then we finally go and say, Lord, I can't. But you can, and you can do it through me if that's your will for me. So go ahead. (laughs) I'm ready to cooperate. Go ahead. Let's do this, right? Because it's both. It's both and. Um. When we realize our dependence on the Spirit and the power available to us, we will be unstoppable to conquer these hidden idols. The Holy Spirit intimately knows what lies within our hearts. It's his place of dwelling inside of us and his desires that we would cast it out. And then he says, which always is my next question, okay, what does that look like? What does that mean? How does that work? He says, quote, while depending on the Holy Spirit... We must, at the same time, recognize our responsibility to diligently pursue all practical steps for dealing with our sins, end quote. And then he quotes those who he says came before him. He doesn't give an attribution, so I can't either. Um, But he says that there is a very difficult um, and delicate balance, right, between these two things. But we're supposed to strike it. And it says, quote, work as if all depends on you, and yet trust, as if you did not work at all. And I like that. So we work as if it all depends on us, but we trust, knowing it really doesn't. It's both and. It's hard, but it gives us an opportunity to exercise our faith in God's trustworthiness in all circumstances. Fourth, we must have a willingness in the humility And I'll add a courage to really search out our own hearts for the sin that lies within. That prayer from Psalm 139, and really if you just read through the Psalms, there are a multitude of prayers there in the whole Bible that invite the Lord to reveal anything that he wants us to see. He already knows it's there, right? I mean, you brought out, Drew, last week, like verse 1 says, he's already searched our hearts, right? We're just really asking him to show us what he found there. Um, And that is scary, but we have to do it realizing how much he loves us, right? How many of you, no matter what your child has done, when they come to you and you see a broken and contrite spirit on their heart and they're really sorry and they apologize, how many of us go, yeah, I don't know. No, we embrace them because we love them. God loves us even more than we love our children, if we can imagine, right? And we can't, but he does. And he wants us to be more like his own son. But this step of courage and willingness and humility to really come face-to-face with our own hearts requires a deeper level of trust, faith, and vulnerability before the Lord. Fifth, he says we, quote, bring to bear specific applicable scriptures end quote, to those areas that God begins revealing to us, we have to cling to the word. We've all memorized scripture. It's in there, and it's available for us to use anytime we want. But we still need to be in the word every single day. We have to continue memorizing it. 
memorizing it or meditating on it, clinging to it, and applying it every day. When we do this work in faith, God can and will use his word that we've hidden in our hearts to help us, to encourage us, to warn us not to go back to something, to chasten us, and to guide us back to the right path. Sixth, Bridges says, quote, we should cultivate the practice of prayer, end quote. And in each one of these areas of sin and idolatry that he, he brings to our attention as we seek him, this practice of prayer, utilizing scripture that we've memorized, it taps into the power of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us. It helps bring that gospel perspective back as we humble ourselves before him under the mighty hand of God asking for his help. Right? Um, any of you come to Donald Whitney's conference years ago on praying through the scriptures? Um, probably for me anyways, one of the most powerful parts of that was he taught us how to pray through the scriptures and he said, no, let's do it. And he would break and have us read through it and pray it back. And it was that practical application that was so meaningful and probably encouraged me even more to go home and the very next morning go, I know how to do this. I've already done it. I did it with him in the conference. He taught me how to do it. I can do this. So just do it. We just have to start doing it. And I'm pretty sure that's still on Sermon Audio if you missed it. I don't know what year it was, but um, if you just search under Gold Country Baptist, Don Whitney, his conference is there. And then lastly, Bridges says um, the same thing many others have said in taking up this battle. Don't go it alone. Find a sister in Christ to walk the path with you. Um, Seek out your husband to walk this path with you. We need mutual sanctification as we are progressively sanctified. You know, I'm always amazed when I share with a sister or a sister sharing with me and one of us, I forget who said it, but I mentioned it in this class before. Where it, uh, it was C.S. Lewis who goes, what? You too? Like, we're all in the same boat. We all struggle with things. They may not be exactly the same things, but every one of us here this morning has a struggle in their life. But it's there by design. And we're not supposed to be Lone Ranger Christians. We're not supposed to try and go it alone. In fact, there's a real danger in trying to work it out alone. We can easily fall into a trap of discouragement or depression. We can even convince ourselves of the enemy's lie that we are alone, that no one else is struggling the way we are struggling. And that's not true. We all are struggling. Um, I mean, that's why the word says we are comforted so that we can comfort others, right, in the same things. They might not be going through the same thing right now in this moment, but they may have six months, six years, or 60 years ago. We just don't know. So we just need to be depending on on one another and relying on one another for help. And remember 1 Corinthians 10.13 begins, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. We are all in it together in the struggle. So why on earth would we try and go it alone? Right? There's only one reason. It's pride. Pride is the only reason we don't go it alone. It really is. But we have to make sure that we're getting the log out of our own eye. If it's a marital struggle, be very careful and don't go share all of your husband's struggles with your friend. Share your struggles with your friend. This is how I'm struggling. Because you can't change your husband. Your sister you're confiding in can't change your husband. But you can change 
the woman in that story that Brad Bigney shared, her husband did exactly what she did not want him to do, things they had thought about for years, silly things. They were silly things. Um, but the Lord changed her in that so that when her husband did, she was fine with it. Okay. Now, if they turn out to be not good things, then they'll suffer those consequences together. And I think sometimes that's our fear as wives. And I know not everyone in here is married, but sometimes that can be a fear, right? What if? What if my husband does that and I have to suffer alongside a decision he's made? Well, then that was God's plan for your sanctification too. So, um, it is dangerous to try and go it alone, so don't. If you're doing it now, stop. Reach out. God is faithful. That's the very next words in that verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 10. All these struggles are common to man, period. God is faithful, period. So I appreciate how Bridges sums this section up. He says, quote, As you seek to apply these directions, remember that your heart is a battleground between the flesh and the spirit. End quote. That comes from Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17. So we really do need to remember that the spiritual battle is real, and we are in the midst of it. Um, Brad Bigney gives three habits in Chapter 12 of his book, and he does um, a great audio on this. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail. Um, You could also just pick up the book and, and read that section. He says, establish and maintain a wartime mentality um, because we are in a wartime, right? These are the last days, and the enemy wants nothing more than to separate us from one another, isolate us from God, and cause us to feel alone and discouraged. He says, make choices that starve your idols, and he goes into a lot of detail in that section. And this book was written a long time ago, but it's so applicable right now. He talks about having a, um, I don't remember if he used obedience, commandment-driven identity, or I'll just call it an obedience-driven identity, and not a feelings-driven identity. Like If you listen carefully, people don't say, I think, anymore. They say, what? I feel. I feel like, and then they'll say something they're thinking. But it's not a feeling. It's it's a thinking. And like those of us who are homeschoolers, we want to raise our kids to be critical thinkers. So we need to be critical thinkers, right? We need to be taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We need to be thinking Christians who desire to obey not such feeling Christians that were, you know, going to and fro with the direction and the whims of the world. So we need to make sure that we're really not being feelings-driven, um, but to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And then I like this one. He said, learn to work backward from the chaos in your life to your own idolatrous desires. So if there's an area of your life that feels chaotic, find it, work backwards, see what's happening. And it could be that your struggle your struggle is in, I'll just use a common struggle in my world, parenting, right? Sometimes my parenting feels chaotic because I go, I don't have any idea what to do right now. I really don't. There are moments when I look at a child and go, I am in a whole new season. Like, when they were this big, I could totally handle this. But now they're this big or this big, and I don't know. 
But God does. So I shouldn't panic. I should pray. I should submit it to the Lord. And I should ask for help, right? Ask my friends who are dealing with ones that are this big. Or maybe this big, but still this big in their own minds, right? I mean, we have to reach out for help. We're not called to know every answer to every problem. We're called to know the one who does. And so that's what we need to do, even if we need to take a pause for a little while and just say, okay, I don't know. But that's okay, because you do. And I'm going to trust you with this. Paul sent the Ephesians a letter that we now have, which is divided into six chapters. Three chapters on doctrine, followed by three chapters on what some people call duty or how to live in light of that doctrine. He begins it by telling us we're going to learn how to walk worthy of the gospel truths that he's lined out. And he tells them in chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, again, this is the book of Ephesians, he says, quote, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. So there's that spiritual warfare idea again, right? He goes on to say, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And that's what Bridges is talking about. That's what Brad Bigney's talking about. It's even what Thomas Chalmers was talking about in the early 1800s. There is literally nothing new under the sun, just different manifestations of it, right? It's, it's not, none of this is new. Even the sexual immorality in our culture It is not new. So we too ought to listen carefully when Paul wraps up his letter by telling them and us this in Ephesians chapter 6. If you want to turn there, I'm going to start in verse 10 and read through 20. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's a lot. There's a lot against us in this world. So when we struggle, let's not be surprised. There's a lot against us. But... Let's turn the corner. Therefore, he says in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. There's that fellowship, right? That coming alongside one another. How can we be making supplication for all the saints if we have no idea what's going on in one another's lives? The Ephesian church knew what was going on in one another's lives. Paul knew, and he wasn't even there half the time. And he knew, right? Most of these letters, he wasn't living there when he wrote the letters. Otherwise, he would have just told them, right? He wrote these letters because even he knew what was going on with them. 
And then in verse 19, this giant that we think of says, and he's talking about making supplication, prayer, he says, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This one, who gives rebukes, who gives open chastisement, who gives warnings, who gives encouragement, who gives, name it, he gives it, asks twice for them to pray that he would be more bold. If Paul's not bold, I don't know who is. He's still praying, help me be bold, right? But he always balanced his boldness with love. He always shared truth in love, right? So we need to be as prepared, if not more prepared, for the battle as they were. And Paul wants us to be prepared. God wants us to be prepared. That's why this letter was preserved for us. So that we would also be prepared. He knew he wasn't immune, and we need to know we are not immune from discouragement. We need to be bold in our witness in the world. Um, And he was the one who had learned to be content in all circumstances. We need to learn that contentment too, even in the midst of storms that are raging all around us. We might not outwardly feel joy, but we're supposed to. We're at least supposed to be learning an inward contentment. And I am convinced that we are called to more. In John 15, Jesus' own words are what convinces me. So what is John 15 about? Anybody remember? If you turn there, the title heading gives it away. It is. It's about abiding in Christ, right? So we are to abide in Christ, and as we are abiding... We are to be loving, and we are to be joyful. Not just joyful, but joy filled with his joy. Listen to verse 11. He says, after this long, these first ten verses on abiding and loving and obeying and all of these things, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He wants us to have his joy. And this was a joy, <clears throat> Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 tells us. Um, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. That's what we're talking about. This sin that's clinging so closely, we don't even see it anymore. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that was set before him? What was he about to do? What did he do on the cross? Yeah, he satisfied, completely satisfied the will of the Father, right? And in so doing, gave us a position with him, right, as co-heirs. 
we also have to persevere to do what God has called us to do. We know what this is. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God. That we would rejoice always. That we would pray without ceasing and that we would give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God. And then he goes on in John 15, Jesus does, and talks to them more about loving one another and bearing fruit. And that's what ought to identify us in the world, our joy, our love for one another, and our bearing fruit. We are victors in Christ, and we need to live like it daily. Have any of you guys ever read this, found God's will? It's this teeny, tiny, itty-bitty little booklet that is like that fast to read. Um, and it's by John MacArthur. He wrote it, actually, he wrote it in 1973. It was originally called God will is, God's Will is Not Lost, um, but it's been republished as Found God's Will. None of you have read this? That surprises me so much. It's excellent, by the way. I'm going to totally spoil it for you because I'm going right to Chapter 7. Um, and in Chapter 7, it's called You're It. So in a you know, tag, you're it. Because he's told you all in the beginning of the book. And this is what he says. He says, God's will is that you be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, and suffering. God's word makes all this clear. Do not read on until you have grasped these five principles. So, saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, suffering. These are God's will for us. You say, MacArthur, you are going to tell me what school I should go to. You are going to tell me God's will specifically. You haven't done it. He says, okay, let me give you the final principle, but hold on to your seat. You may want to jump up and shout. If you are doing all five of the basic things, do you know what the next principle of God's will is? Do whatever you want. If those five elements of God's will are operating in your life, who is running your wants? God is. The psalmist said, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Psalm 37, 4. God does not say he will fulfill all the desires there. If you are living a godly will, I'm sorry, if you are living a godly life, he will give you the right desires. I love that book. When I read that as a pretty young Christian, someone gave that to me when I was struggling with, like, what is God's will in a particular situation. And they gave me this, and I got to that, like, do whatever you want. But that's why he says, don't go on until you've grasped these previous chapters. So if you are saved, if you are spirit-filled, if you are sanctified, if you are submissive, and if you are suffering, do whatever you want. That's so freeing. That's not taking advantage of Christian liberties to give excuse to things we ought not be doing. That is true Christian freedom right there, right? Because God is ruling the desires of my heart when I am in those places. So it is hard work, but it yields peace. It yields contentment. It yields joy. It yields love for one another. And it really yields us to be doing life God's way. So I'm going to leave you to the work that God has for you with 1 Corinthians 15, 57, and 58, which says, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I'll pray, and then we'll go upstairs. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, Lord, for the time that you give us to spend in your word. And I'm thankful for this study, Lord, and I just pray that you would search me, oh God, and know my heart. Lord, would you reveal any wicked way in me, Lord, and lead me in the way everlasting. And I pray that each of my sisters just prayed that prayer with me, Lord, that we would be willing to see the darkest parts of our hearts, Lord, because you want to not just reveal them, you want to displace them. Lord, but you want to replace them with something better. Lord, would you allow that expulsive power of a new affection, a better affection, be evident and clear to each one of us, Lord, as we see a sinner in the mirror each and every morning. Lord, would you give us hope? Would you give us joy? And would you give us full confidence that you are faithful and the work that you have begun in each one of our lives you will bring to completion, Lord? I thank you for this study, and I pray, Father, that as we go upstairs, we would be ready to hear whatever it is that you have for us, Lord, and that we would leave with new convictions, that we would leave desiring um, new application in our life as a result of spending time with you and your word and our family here, Lord, and um, we just give that all to you and ask that you would do that work in the Lord's name. Amen.